at just 16 years old, Anthony Schmidt has the type of car collection that would make most celebrities jealous, with the exception of like Jay Leno. Uh, Ford Mustangs, Studebaker Avantis, Chevy Bel Airs, Impalas, Camaros. We have uh, a picture of, of some of his collection. There we go. 16 years old, owns all the cars that you see here. Really, really spectacular. Any, any big car buffs in the room? Yeah. Quite an impressive eye for cars for a 16-year-old young man. And it, it actually started when he was just 12 years old. Uh, but there's one major flaw that all of his cars share in common. Does anybody want to guess? They have no engines. Yeah, none of them run. None of them run. And that's because they're all toys. They're all, they're all toys. Anthony, Anthony is an artist who specializes in what's called forced perspective photography. Do you have that second photo? And actually, Dan, there's a copy of my notes on the printer if you want to. Oh, so you guys should be able to keep up without being prompted then. Okay, I'll remember that. So this is, this is Anthony doing what Anthony does. He specializes in what's called forced perspective photography. And in this type of photography, you use the angle and the background of the photo to skew the observer's perspective of the subject of your photograph, making toy cars look like real cars. And actually, if you jump back to the first photo, you can see in the bottom left, the one in the gas station, that car that's at the pump is a real car. But Anthony has used forced perspective photography to make the toy, the replica, look bigger than the original. It's all a matter of perspective. Raise your hand if you were tricked. You saw those photos, you're like, man, this young guy's got cool cars. <laughs> Raise your hand if you didn't buy it. If you saw through it, just a fistful, okay. Just a fistful. Here's the thing, if you've never seen the original, then the flaws of the replica are easy to fly under your radar. They, they, they're not as noticeable, the flaws of the replica are not as noticeable if you're not familiar with the original. But if you're familiar with the original, then it's easier to spot the imperfections in a replica. Good morning. Resurrection Church. Good morning and welcome to part three of a series we've called Culturally Incorrect. Here's a church. We wanted to explore some of the findings of uh, Ligonier Ministry in partnership with Lifeway Ministries does every two years what they call the State of Theology Survey. And in their State of Theology, they're asking uh, theologically loaded questions to all kinds of people and then on their data explorer, you can actually segment that data to identify what do self-proclaimed evangelical Christians believe. And in this series, what we found is that evangelical Christians often believe things that are contrary to what we read in Scripture. And this is why we're calling this series Culturally Incorrect. Because there's something about cultural Christianity that has skewed our perspective of certain biblical truths in a very damaging and unhealthy way, and this morning is no exception. Today we're exploring the statement, quote, 
even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Now, this is exactly how the question or the statement appears on the survey. As Bible-believing Christians, do we believe this to be true? Better question, is this consistent with what the Bible teaches? So I've been saying this throughout the series thus far, but I think that perspective is helpful. What's important in a discussion like this is that we put on the table that our source of truth is not human reason. We don't want to, by our own reason, come to conclusions about biblical questions, about matters of human existence. These things are too big for us to reason through on our own. And so God has seen fit to give us a book. And in that book, he reveals to us himself. This book is intended. So here, here's, here's how Psalm 1611 says it. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's seen fit to give us his word that we might know him and know what he approves of and what he doesn't approve of. He uses this book and the working of his spirit to lead us and guide us to himself for eternity. So the statement that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation, is it true? And is it Biblical. The 2020 survey found that 43% of evangelical Christians disagreed with the statement that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. And in 2022, that number grew 10% to 53%. The majority of self-proclaimed Christians now deny that sin deserves punishment. To be clear... What they're saying without saying it is that God's okay with some sin, just not too much. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 6 this morning. This is where Isaiah is confronted with. He encounters the holiness of God. And in my estimation, this gets to the heart of why 53% of self-proclaimed Christians can get a statement like that so wrong. It's not, in my estimation, the problem is not that we underestimate the offense of our conduct as much as we underestimate the holiness of our king. We've lost sight of the original. We're looking constantly at replicas. And when we see the replica, it's easy to just assume that flaws are inherent. Like, of course the replica doesn't have an engine. Of course there's blemishes in the paint. It's a replica. Who cares? No, no, no. You should see the original. The original is what the replica is made to reflect. And when, and when we see the original, we can no longer just disregard the flaws of the replicas. You and I have been created in God's image to reflect His glory and brought face to face with the reality of who he is, Isaiah, Isaiah has a moment of recognition. 
and I want to show it to you. I think the problem in our society is not all that different from forced perspective photography. We live in a world that bids us to take our eyes off of the original, off of our creator, and onto the replica, onto the creature. I think we live in a society where we've been robbed of a saturation that for many of us was in place when you were growing up. A type of saturation in who God is. And in our day and age, it's being taken from us. And uh, my concern is that our churches haven't caught up yet with the fact that we no longer live in a society that embraces Christianity as a default. So what we'll explore in Isaiah 6 is that in the presence of God, the one in whose image humanity is created, sin is revealed for what it truly is. If we are to disregard the severity of our sin, then ultimately what we're doing is we're disregarding our need for a Savior. And that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous thing to suppose. Because as we'll read today, that Christ died to save sinners. If we disregard the severity of our sin, we've disregarded our need for a Savior. Let's examine the story in Isaiah 6. I'd love it if you found it, uh, if you would stand with me. We're going to be in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to witness Isaiah's journey. And I want to trace it through these three C words. Isaiah goes from captivated to convicted to compelled. We're going to trace his journey through those words. Captivated to convicted to compelled. Isaiah chapter 6 reads this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that was taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me before you take your seats to join me in prayer. Father, Hallowed be your name in us, in this church, in our workplaces, in our families, in our homes, in our cities, in our lives. Father, hallowed be your name. Empower us to hallow your name, that we might treat it as holy, that we might carry your reputation, not in vain, but that as we go into our workplaces and into our weeks, that we might carry the conviction that we represent you. We are made to reflect you and your glory. And so this morning, we've come to your house to hear your word. We've gathered with your people. Would you meet us here? 
Holy Spirit, would you meet us here? Would you work in us through your word? Would you draw us close that we might see you clearly as you really are? Because it's only when we see you clearly that we see ourselves most clearly. Help us this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I, I feel like a broken record because it's been a couple of times in the last month that I've told you this is one of the most glorious texts in all of Scripture. Right? Like, did I not do that when we did uh, Ephesians just a couple weeks ago? When we did Isaiah 40? And I'm telling you, here again in Isaiah 6, this is one that if, if you're not familiar with it, like bookmark it. This is one you come back to. Isaiah is invited to see something that no human eye has ever seen. Isaiah is invited into the true holy of holies. Like the one that the earthly temple was made as a reflection of. Isaiah is really there. And he sees, he sees what's really going on. He sets the stage for this glorious revelation with these words, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, the question is, is he just giving us like a timestamp, or is he saying something significant about the revelation that he receives on this day from the Lord? King Uzziah, uh, who's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, the majority of what most Christians know about him is that um, in the year that Isaiah had this revelation, he died. Like that's the extent of what most of us know about him. But King Uzziah was actually a really good king. He was a really good king right up until the end. He kind of faltered a little bit toward the end. But, but when Scripture records the life and ministry of King Uzziah, it actually records him in a very positive light. Uzziah ruled in Judah for 52 years. Consider how long 52 years is. In the last 52 years in the United States, we've had presidents Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush 1.0, Clinton, Bush 2.0, Obama, Trump, and Biden. That's 52 years for us, 10 presidents. They had one guy for 52 years, and they enjoyed peace and prosperity for the majority of that 52 years. So here's the question is, how does a kingdom feel when their king dies? When a good king dies? Maybe a little fear? Maybe a little anxiety? Maybe a little discomfort? Maybe some of us, as, as a result of certain elections, or as we approach another one, maybe we're starting to feel that too. A little fear, a little anxiety, and if you don't feel it yet, I think it's coming. I think the news is just so, has figured out that if they just put the right pictures in front of you, they can make you feel how they want you to feel. I, I, I think, I think a, a, a type of shaking is coming. And, and here, when Isaiah experienced this, right, as we're considering the, the turning over of the keys from one king to another, the vulnerability of the kingdom, in the midst of an unsettling time, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. What could be more comforting in that moment than to see the Lord, right? A good king dies. Judah's afraid, but Isaiah sees what is true. A good king may have died, but the true king remains on his throne. And this king does not die. Isaiah learned that when the outlook is bleak, don't look outlook up. Anytime the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. Isaiah looks up and he's, He's captivated. He says, I saw. 
that which was invisible was made visible. The voice that he had heard, he now beholds. And seated before him is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who commits the Torah to Moses, the God whose name is I Am, the God who parted the Red Sea. And right here, this God, in the face of shaking that's happening in the kingdom of Judah, this God is not wringing his hands. He's not worried about what's happening on earth. He's receiving praise. He's receiving glory. He's sitting upon a throne. This is a particularly glorious vision that Isaiah relays to us here. He says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up the train of his robe, like the hem of his garment. The fringes of his garment were enough to fill the temple. Like the temple couldn't hold all of his garment, just the fringes. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. It's worth noting, there's no other creature in Scripture that has six wings. Several others have four. None other has six. I read one commentary that supposed that it could be that the number of wings is a picture, an indicator of where they serve. Uh, the, the higher the number of wings, the closer they are to the throne because we don't see another creature, in uh, another spiritual being that has this many wings. Two, he covers his face. Two, he covered his feet. Two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his. Now, you might expect, you might expect that next word to be holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his holiness, right? Because he's holy, holy, holy. It's full of his glory. John Piper says it this way, the glory of God is his holiness gone public. When we, when we behold his glory, what we're beholding is the uniqueness of his nature. It's, his, it's everything about who he is, but it's his, it's his holiness gone public. And it's called glory. And the foundations shook and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is permitted to witness what no one else had ever witnessed. No human eye can observe what Isaiah is observing because we know from Scripture that no one can see God and live. So Isaiah is invited close to see something very special. God's actual throne room. The angelic beings in the throne room are mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. Seraphim are not anywhere else in Scripture. You get cherubim elsewhere. You get... Uh, archangels elsewhere, but seraphim. And the name actually, um, the name actually means burning ones. Burning ones. Now, it, it, it's, it's impossible to know why, but you can muse on it for a while, right? Is it that their six wings make them resemble a flame? Is that why they're called seraphim, burning ones? Or is it just that their appearance is burning? Or is it that God, our God, is a consuming fire? And they're made for his presence where they won't be consumed, but they are forever burning because they're so close to his throne. When, they, when the Bible says that they, they use their wings, two to cover their face and two to cover their feet, the verb tense that's used denotes an ongoing action. They keep covered. 
their faces and their feet. Even these who are made for His presence won't dare to unveil their faces or their feet in His presence. They're made for His presence, but they won't uncover themselves in His presence because He's holy, holy, holy. And they cry out a very catchy chorus declaring what is plainly obvious to all in attendance. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Repetition is the Hebrew uh, linguistic device, the Hebrew way to denote uh, emphasis. And so in 2 Kings 25, we read about what's translated in your Bible as pure gold, but in Hebrew it reads literally gold, gold. As if someone's asking, hey, is that gold? It's like, no, that's gold, gold. of the gold, you would just repeat it. It's gold, gold. Other things in Scripture are repeated in this way. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a well-used device, but nothing else in all of Scripture is raised to the third degree. So that's, that's gold squared, right? That's gold, gold. But only God is holy, holy, holy. Nothing else is raised to the third degree except for God. It's not just that He's holy. I mean, He's holy, but He's not just holy. He's holy, holy. And He's not just holy, holy. This God is holy. holy. I mean that God is holy. I think, I think that's like churchy language. And maybe if you grew up in church, you've got a concept for what holy means. But what does it actually mean that God is holy? It means He's wholly different from anything we've ever seen or known. This is at the heart of why the seraphim cover themselves. It's at the heart of why no one is able to observe what Isaiah is observing. And it's why Isaiah responds the way that he does, which we'll revisit in a moment here. What does it mean that God is holy? It means that he's set apart. It means that he's sacred. Many things in the Bible are considered holy. I'll just give you a quick list. We've got holy nations, holy convocations, holy places, holy people, holy ground, and holy water, but only God is holy, holy, holy. And this particular type of holiness puts God in a category all by himself. There's nothing else that's like him. So here, um, here is a definition of God's holiness. Probably not perfect, but I think it's helpful. God's holiness is his unique moral perfection before which sinful humanity instinctively trembles. It's the whole truth about God Himself, the sum of His nature, character, and attributes. Holiness is not part of who He is. All of who He is makes Him holy. And Isaiah instinctively responds to this revelation of God's holiness, just as all people who've ever beheld God's holiness instinctively respond to it. There is one response when you are met face to face with the pureness of His being and His holiness. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm lost. I actually like the way the NIV renders that. I am undone. I'm falling apart at the seams. Uh, I, I, like, so, so you know what it is to be falling apart, right? Like, like you've had that experience, you had that tough breakup, and you were falling apart, right? Isaiah is, he's disintegrating. He's coming apart 
at the seams. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He, he recognizes the destitute nature of his condition in the presence of God's holiness. And so it, it's, it's really only in the presence of his holiness that we recognize our hopelessness apart from his help. He says, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. So at first Isaiah was captivated. He says, I saw. And now he's convicted. I said, woe is me. What's he convicted? What, What convicts him? What sin is he so overwhelmed with in the presence of a holy God? Potty mouth. Now, in the grand scheme of sins, wouldn't we consider that like junior sin, right? Like, wouldn't we count, wouldn't we count potty mouth as like, I mean, it, you probably should take care of it, but, you know, we'll be patient with you, right? Like, that's, wouldn't we consider that small sin? Wouldn't we? But, but, but even, even for folks who do do it all the time, they say, yeah, I'm like, I'm, so I've actually seen this sweater. I'm a Christian, but I cuss a little. You haven't seen that sweater? So Isaiah is undone because of unclean lips. And so what, what, what's the statement we're responding to in the survey? Right? Uh, that, that all sin, even small sin, deserves eternal punishment. And to us, we're like, well, what's the big deal? It's just, it's just words. Isaiah, in the presence of a holy God, is undone over his words. Woe is me. Only after seeing God's perfection are we truly aware of our own imperfection. This is, again, a universal experience in Scripture. Like, find me a person who met with God face to face and didn't hide. And didn't have this woe is me experience. Right? Like when God's looking for Adam in the garden, what's Adam do? He hides. When, when God confronts Moses in a burning bush, Moses is, 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 is stuttering. God, you can't use me. This happens to Job. Job spends 40 chapters with his friends trying to figure out what's going on in his life. And when God shows up on the scene, Job shuts up. He's like, I, I'd spoken about what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. And now I despise myself. And I repent. And at the end of this whole interaction, God vindicates Job. He says that Job has spoken right. But in the presence of God's holiness, we're aware of our imperfections. This happens to David. It happens to Elijah. It happens to Peter. It happens to Paul. And now we see it happen to Isaiah. We can add his name to the list. And this gets right at the heart of this statement in the State of Theology survey. This gets right at the heart of why we misunderstand that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Again, 53% of Christians disagree with the Bible on this statement. And it's because we lack a revelation of His holiness. Despite clear verses that teach that the wages of sin is death. So sin is work, and as you do it, you earn wages, and the wages you earn is death. In spite of verses that teach that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, so what does sin cost? It costs blood. It costs 
life. Scripture teaches that sin came into the world through one man, and so death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And, and, and sin isn't graded by degrees. There's a zero-tolerance policy about it. He's holy. He's holy. We can't just presume on his kindness to the neglect of his holiness and say, like, surely I can bring all this into your presence, right? Like, you were okay with this. He's made clear to us that he's not. So, Paul says that he... God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Like, if you want to know how God feels about your sin, look no further than the cross. Like, this is what sin deserves. And if, in your view, sin doesn't need to be punished then you don't need a savior and that would be not only a false perspective but a deeply dangerous one because it disregards how great a salvation that's been made available to us it disregards the work of God on your behalf and mine when we've convinced ourselves that sin is not really as serious as the Bible says it is what we've done is we've looked in the face of Christ kneeling in the garden of Gethsemane and said, is this all really necessary? Like all this screaming and crying out and drops of blood that you're doing right now, is, is that all really necessary? We've looked at his disfigured face as he hangs on the cross for your sins and mine and said, is this all really necessary? Like after all, isn't sin just no big deal, really? Did you really have to do all that? If I'm not that bad as I like to think that I am, then God's forgiveness of me is a small gift from him to me because I'm not that bad. And my willingness to lay down my life to love, serve, and follow him is a big thing. Because actually, if I'm being honest, I think God's pretty fortunate to have me on the team. So, you know, he, he probably should lighten up some of those demands because he's lucky I showed up today. If I can compare myself with other people, I can convince myself that I'm not so bad. I'm actually pretty good. Much better than that guy. He's a scoundrel, but me? I do a pretty good job. And all I'm doing is I'm comparing one replica against another to the ignorance of the original the one whose image I was made to reflect. And I think that this is why many Christians hold this very dangerous and unbiblical view of sin. Because we live in a world of forced perspective. We're thrown in front of you all day long are the pictures of broken people that invite you to look at them and say, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. And this is why we as Christians are committed. So Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
This is why we as Christians commit to gathering weekly and many of us multiple times a week. I've said this to you before. I think that in the day and age in which we live, if you're only coming to church every Sunday, and hey, I'm saying that exactly the way that I mean to say it. If you are only coming to church every Sunday, then you are probably dragging yourself in here by Sunday morning. Because I just think that the world we live in is so trying and so testing on your Christian convictions and your moral compass that if you don't have a weekly check-in, like a men's group or a women's group or a res you or a small group, I just think that you're running on empty for the majority of the week. And you're lucky. You're lucky if you've got the spiritual wherewithal to bring yourself in here next Sunday morning because your battery's just drained. Like try plugging your phone in one day a week and see how that goes. Like, why do we treat our faith? Why do we treat our faith different? Why do we treat our phone better than we treat our faith? I, 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 just, I just think this is why we need this. Because it's in the gathering that someone opens the word for us and invites us to behold his holiness. And we need to be in a place where this is what's being preached often. Behold his holiness so that we might set our frame of comparison right. I don't want to compare myself with you. Because it's really easy to fall into self-justification when I do that. And hey, like, um, just look at how Jesus treats the self-righteous in Scripture. Like, why is it that he's gentle with the woman caught in the act of adultery? Do you remember that story? So she's thrown before him. And all these Pharisees are saying, Jesus, the law says we can stone her. What do you say? He writes in the dirt for a little bit. Then he says, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. And one by one, they walk away. And he kneels down and he lifts her face. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Do none condemn you? Neither then do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Like, why is he gentle with her and harsh with the Pharisees? Why does he call the Pharisees full of dead men's bones? They look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of death. Deeply offensive. Why is he gentle with her and harsh with them? Because they were self-righteous. They were self-justified. This is what's at stake in it with a statement like this and a question like this, this is what's at stake. If you're in that group that says, I don't think sin is such a big deal, then A, you've misunderstood the cross and B, you are on the fast track to self-justification where you will stand before his throne someday and read your resume and think that he owes you eternity in heaven and think that it's something other than grace through faith in Christ. The core of the gospel is what's at stake in a statement like this. This is why we need to be brought to behold the original. Because when we behold his perfection, we're forced to confront our own imperfections. And I think this is why we flinch at the teaching of God's holiness, because it exposes our unholiness. The more clearly I see his holiness, the more clearly I feel my own hopelessness by assuming that not all sin deserves the just judgment of God some have essentially said that Christ's sacrifice was really only for the really bad sinners and that's not you that's not me because you're not like them be careful
Be careful with those beliefs. That is the fast track to self-justification. He always saves his harshest rebuke for the self-righteous. This is why Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Who does Christ come to save? Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Paul calls himself chief among sinners because Christ died, died to save those. Christ died to save those. And this is what Isaiah does. He joins himself with Paul in this statement. Convicted and repentant, right then and there, God meets Isaiah with grace at the level of his repentance. I, don't let that be lost on you. The very thing Isaiah repents of is the thing that receives the grace of God. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. This is why His holiness is not bad news for you. So, so His holiness exposes your hopelessness, right? His perfection exposes your imperfection. And that can feel like bad news. That can feel like something I want to run from. I don't want to talk about how holy God is because then I have to confront how unholy I am. But this is why his holiness is such good news for you and me, because the same holiness that exposes my sin atones for it. The same holiness that exposes me in my sin makes atonement for my sin. We might run from his holiness because it exposes our imperfection, but it's the very thing that our imperfection requires. We need a holiness. And you don't have any of your own. You can't produce your own holiness. So when we bring to him our unholiness, he meets us with his holiness. The holiness we need, the holiness that's outside of ourselves, his holiness. When we bring to him our perfections, he meets us with mercy and grace and gives us a holiness that we could have never earned. It touches our impurities and it takes them away. So Isaiah has gone from captivated, I saw, to convicted, I said. Finally, he's compelled. Here I am. Here I am. What, what, what do you need, God? Verse 8, we read, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I Isaiah doesn't even know what the mission is yet. Right? Like, like, there was no job offer. No job description. It wasn't written out for him. He doesn't even know what he's signing up for. But his, his answer is, Here am I. Like, like can, can you use someone like me, God? because you just took my sin away. Can you even use someone like me? Here I am. Send me. This is one of the most beautiful things about getting to do ministry, is I get to see this moment in the minds and eyes of, of countless people as they come to this moment of realization of what's been done for them, the gift that's been given to them, 
And their response is, it's the only right response in the human heart, which is, what can I do? What can I do? What can I give? How can I serve? How can I, how can I get involved? What, what, what can I do? What can I do? See, your sin is only bad news for you if it remains unforgiven. Once your sin is forgiven, it's actually no longer bad news. And I know that's, that's weird to hear, but once you're forgiven, your sin is fuel. Your sin is fuel for your ministry. Once it's forgiven, once it's under the blood, now you've got, you had a test and now you have a testimony. Now you've got room to tell people how what you had done didn't work. And that meets them where they are because they're doing what you did and they're getting what you had gotten. And now you can say with confidence, there's a better way. There's a better way. See, if, if he really, again, back to the heart of this issue, does all sin really deserve eternal punishment? If he really saved me from eternal punishment, if he really did for me what I could have never done for me, then I've got a problem. Because that means that there's no limit to what he can ask of me in return. He gave to me something I could not produce or earn on my own. And now there's no limit to what he can ask of me. There is no, hey, that's too far, God. You can't, you can't ask for that. There's no limit to what he can ask of me. My debt to him is eternal, infinite, and impossible to repay. My only option is to give him all of me. Because I owe him an eternal gratitude. And if all I have is all of me, then that's what I'll give him. And when I really understand what he's done for me, I won't give that begrudgingly. I won't be half-hearted about giving him all of me because when I really get it, here am I. Here I am, Lord. Send me. I don't even know what the mission is. I don't know what the job description is. I don't know what it pays. I don't know where it's going to take me, but I'm yours. I'm yours, completely yours. I'm all in. This is what Isaiah does. As soon as there's a need, here I am. But what about us? What about us? Have you been, oh, my hope for you, oh, family, my hope for you is that there was a point in your life where you were captivated with a picture of his holiness. And if that's never happened for you, I want that for you today. Like, I want you to see him as he is. I, I hope that that moment for you came on that day when you came to a conscious awareness of your need for a savior and his willingness to meet that need. I hope you were captivated. I hope you had an I saw moment captivated by his holiness, captivated by his glory, captivated by his beauty. And then following that moment, I hope you had a, a moment of conviction. I said, Lord, I, I don't deserve this. Lord, how could you love someone like me? Lord, I, I'm so broken. I'm so filthy. I'm so, like, I'm so selfish. God, how, how could you love someone like me? 
My hope is that you brought to him your conviction. You brought to him these things and he met you with his holiness. The same holiness that exposed in you these imperfections, as you brought them to him, he met you with his holiness and he atoned for your sin and he assured you right then and there that all of the things that you had done were washed away and under the blood. I hope you've had that moment. I hope you've had that moment. And if you've had that moment, if you've received His mercy, if you've received His grace, my question to you today is are you compelled? Are you compelled? You've been captivated. You've been convicted. You've been atoned for. Are you compelled? Do you have that Isaiah response? Here I am. Lord, what's the mission? I'm all in. I, 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 I'm signing the name on a blank contract. You fill out the rest. I'm yours. I'm all in. Here I am. Send me. Even before we know what he might require of us, here I am. Send me. Will we, in the face of his holiness, be courageous to step into what is unknown to us, trusting that our obedience is the path to our transformation? Trusting that he could take someone even like us and use us. Living out of the fuel of forgiven sin. Knowing that though our sin deserved eternal punishment, he forgave it. As were many, his mercy was more. Will you step out this morning? Will your answer to him say, here my Lord, send me. Let me pray for us. Father, here we are. We bring to you all of us because you gave us all of you. You poured out your life on the cross that we might be forgiven of our sin, that we might know you. Thank you. And now, because you've given us all of you, we, we can't help but give you all of us. So, Father, we're sorry about the broken areas. We're sorry about the stained areas. We didn't mean to. Uh, sometimes we did. But, Father, we bring them to you, and we trust that you will meet them with your holiness. You'll atone for our sin. You'll wash it away. And now, Father, we present ourselves to you. We present our lives to you. Family, I want to invite you to stand. Father, we stand in your presence, presenting our lives and our hearts to you as living sacrifices. And we say with Isaiah, Here am I, Lord. Send me. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.